Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 304. Today we're going to be talking about Towards the New Millennium. Uh, Towards the New Millennium, which is kind of a continuation of what happened last lecture, which is, in of itself, a continuation of the one that happened before. Uh, weirdly, this is going to be kind of a three-part series, so this is the return of the Jedi, if you will, of the gangster rap saga. Now, what I want you to think about in this time period is, is for this entire lecture, is the idea that things are really on a knife's edge. And a little bit of a spoiler, everything actually ends up okay. Like, it could have very easily not ended up okay, but weirdly, all three of these things kind of end up okay. Um, it's not as bad as it could be. So, give you a second to get the PowerPoint. If you go over to the first slide, post-mortem. Uh, there you'll see, you know, Biggie and Tupac and kind of claymation figures. Kind of look like, uh, you know, California raisins or something. Um, just want to kind of set the stage of where we are before we get into the kind of three different stories that make up today's lecture. Uh, it's the beginning of 1998. Uh, Tupac is dead. Suge is in jail. And Snoop is really not all that crazy about being the last one left at Def Jam. Uh, Dr. Dre has left, sorry, on Death Row, not Def Jam, he is on Death Row. Dr. Dre has left to form Aftermath and is uh, busy producing a new Chronic album to be released in conjunction with, Liters with Interscope, who actually is still distributing the shell of Death Row, which is going to become a problem in a second. And he's also looking for new talent. I mean, people like Dr. Dre, but remember, he's not much of a rapper of his own. He usually gets his stuff ghostwritten. Uh, he needs to find somebody else to kind of replace the kind of rapping part of it. He can still make the beats, but he needs somebody to rap. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Biggie is dead. Biggie is dead, and the, the title of the King of New York is vacant. Uh, there's also a lot of questions about how battles could proceed uh, without bloodshed. Remember, battling and beefing is a very normal thing in the hip-hop community, a very normal thing in the hip-hop culture. And now there's questions, you know, can we have another battle without it ending in bloodshed or violence like uh, the, the East Coast, West Coast thing? You know, controversy creates cash, of course, but... How do you stop the controversy from claiming lives? And I should mention there are some new claimants to the crown of King of New York who we'll talk about in a little while. Uh, in general, though, the country is looking towards the new millennium, and, and thanks to a pretty good economy and a general feeling of goodwill, I mean, the Cold War's over, the United States doesn't seem to have any existential threats, um, the, there's a general feeling of it, like, think kind of a goodwill, like, kind of, hey, new things are going to happen, but they're going to be fairly good. There's a Weird sense of positivity in the country as a whole. And it also doesn't hurt that the music business is at its absolute zenith during its time. Uh, if you talk about just sheer money and sales, the music business was never bigger than it was during this time period. Just for sheer sales. Like, in this time period, I'm sure you've heard of an album going platinum that's a million sold. Uh, in this time period, it was not unusual for albums to go diamond. That's 10 million sold, which is... Those are ludicrous numbers, really. So our lecture today is going to talk about what happens to those three threats. You know, these kind of three ling lingering questions from last lecture. You know, what's going to become of Snoop Dogg? You know, is he going to be able to leave Death Row? Um, who's going to become King of New York? You know, who's going to become King of New York? Likewise, is Dr. Dre going to be able to make a new uh, record label? And kind of what's going to happen with the music business being very, very large in this time period? And I should mention, this is one of our last uh, lectures that really is chronological. 
Um, we'll talk next class. I'll, I'll, we're going to be going into more thematic things for a while. I mean, we are ultimately going to go back to chronology, don't worry. But uh, most of our lectures so far have been like of various time periods, kind of sequential. Uh, we're about to get a little bit more thematic as we get past midterm. So if you go over one slide, let's see what's going on with Snoop. Uh, okay, Snoop wants out of his contract with Death Row, but no one really wants to negotiate with Suge Knight, who, although in jail, is still very much the leader of the shell of Def Jam. Uh, you can see the picture right there. There's, there's Suge and Tupac and, uh, and, and Snoop. Uh, Snoop is not like too happy to be with, with, the, with these individuals. Remember... Um, for quite a while, Snoop felt that like you know he, he didn't really like the lifestyle too much, didn't like the gangster element of it. Like he likes talking about it, but actually you know getting a murder case uh, kind of scared him. Likewise, he felt that Suge Knight was being withholding of money. Uh, that is not unusual in the music business as a whole. I mean, we talked about that when we talked about Sugar Hill Records, the idea that you know you don't give artists money, you give them like gifts like gold chains or, or cars or something but you don't actually give them their money and what number money you do give them often has a lot of liens in it. Like they take out promotion and production out of the artist cut. So although, you know, Snoop is, is selling millions, he's not making millions. He's not worth millions. Uh, he's not in a very advantageous deal with Suge Knight. Now Suge Knight really doesn't want to give up anything else. Remember, I mean, Tupac is dead. He's trying to make some money off the Tupac thing. Anybody who could have left Death Row has already left Death Row, gotten out of their contracts. Um, and he's not, unlike Puff Daddy, who's able to like really catapult himself into stardom thanks to Biggie Smalls' death, uh, Suge Knight's not really able to do that. Remember, Suge is not really an artist himself. He's more of a creator of an executive. But he's still Suge Knight, and he's still absolutely terrifying. Um, and Snoop is telling pretty much anybody, please sign me, and particularly, please sign me out. Uh, I mentioned before, you know, he's a very popular rapper, probably one of the most popular rappers of this time period. Uh, he does not have a very good record deal with Suge Knight, and Suge Knight's not very generous with his artist. And Snoop did not have the money to be able to buy himself out of the deal. Um, sometimes if an artist like, has a, a good deal of money, they might be able to buy themselves out of a not great record contract. Uh, that, that's something that does exist. I mean, for instance, as I as I record this on September the 25th, 2020, uh, Kanye West is trying to get out of his record deal, trying to buy his way out of his current record deal. It's definitely an issue. This is not anything particularly unusual. So pretty much Snoop is asking anybody, you know, I, I want a deal. Please get me out of this. Please get me out of this. I don't care who it is. I want to make, I want to get out of my record deal with Death Row. I'm still very popular. I can make a lot of something. And his savior comes from a very unlikely place. And that unlikely place, if you go over one slide, is New Orleans. Um, Matt, despite being the head of a regional late record label with limited success, we'll talk about that in a second, uh, Percy Master P. Miller is in a negotiation to negotiate with Knight for Snoop Services. And basically, Master P is the only one who's willing to go to prison you know, to Suge Knight about this. And he does so. Um, in exchange for buying out Snoop's contract, which basically involved Master P paying Suge Knight a couple million dollars, um, this was pretty much a handshake deal. There were, there were lawyers. Uh, the specifics of the numbers have never come out. However, it is fairly accepted. Pretty much all the parties agree that Master P paid um, Suge Knight a few million dollars basically to get um, Snoop services. 
In exchange, Snoop has to record three albums on No Limit Records, which is Masterpiece Record Label. Now, ironically, this is very close to the deal that uh, Suge Knight gave to Tupac to get Tupac out of prison. Uh, the three-record deal, uh, not a lot of money, basically paying off your debt, and then you do what you can, because uh, Master P was not giving Snoop Dogg a very generous deal, but we'll talk about that in a second. But it's going to have a very different ending, I will say that. Um, Suge Knight agrees, and Snoop gleefully moves to New Orleans, and then later to Baton Rouge. In fact, Snoop pretty much spends the entirety of his time with No Limit living in Baton Rouge. I'll talk about that in just a second, because that's where <laughs> that's where I come into this story, weirdly enough. No, I, I don't have a history with Snoop Dogg. Well, well, we'll talk about that in a second. This deal shows that uh, change was happening in the rap industry. Uh, rappers didn't need to get huge deals to get paid even more money. Basically, things are going on here. Like, Master P is not selling anywhere close to what Snoop Dogg was selling. Nowhere close to what, like, Puff Daddy or the Def Jam artists were selling. So even though he's not as selling as many records and actually selling them for a cheaper price, Master P is able to make a lot more money off of this. If you go over one more slide, we will talk about Master P. I will tell you right now, I am going to interchange by calling him Master P and Miller. If I say Miller, I mean Percy Miller is his real name. Um... Once again, this is one of those times that I wrote a book about this, so <laughs> I'm going to try to keep the, the information a little limited. But uh, Percy Miller, Percy Miller, that's his real name, Percy Miller, was born in the Calpe Projects of New Orleans in 1970, the first of five children. Um, he lives primarily with his grandparents most of the time growing up in a fairly small apartment in the Calpe Projects, um, also known as the CP3. It's kind of funny they're called CP3 because Chris Paul, the basketball player, was also called CP3, even though he had no connection to the Calpy Projects whatsoever. Uh, like I said, he grows up with uh, with, with grandparents. Uh, his, his parents are kind of in and out various times. They're, they're working class, uh, working poor, if you will. Basically, they, they all have jobs. It's not underclass, but they're not making a ton of money. Uh, making enough money, though, for to basically put them in Catholic school, that's one thing. Uh, Master P goes to Catholic school in New Orleans. Uh, very good athlete. He's a, he's an amazing athlete in high school. He's actually a varsity basketball player. Uh, he's an exceptional basketball player, as we're going to talk about in just a second. Uh, after he graduates from Catholic school in New Orleans, he actually gets a, a basketball scholarship at the University of Houston, which is a really big deal in the 80s, when this time was. Um, in, the, in the 80s, um, the University of Houston's basketball team was known as Phi Slamma Jamma. That's uh, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon and Hills Ilk were there. Uh, that, that's kind of like the idea, like we're the biggest, dunkiest uh, basketball team out there. And so, you know, he gets recruited as a basketball player for a very good basketball school. Uh, he ultimately, though, has to drop out fairly early in his freshman year because of an injury. Uh, basically, he injures his leg pretty bad. Um, it's so bad that, you know, they, they, they revoke his scholarship. And pretty much he goes back to New Orleans. Uh, after returning to New Orleans, he starts studying business administration at SUNO, that's Southern University of New Orleans. He also gets married uh, to his wife, Sonia, uh, fairly early on, too. He's about 18, 19 years old whenever, actually 17 years old whenever he marries Sonia. Uh, in 1988, when he's about 18 years old, uh, he and his wife, they moved to Richmond, California, which is in the Bay Area to escape the kind of unsavory parts of New Orleans. 
uh, one of his brothers was killed kind of in a drug-related thing, but his brother wasn't really doing drugs or selling drugs. It was just the neighborhood had kind of gone down because of this. Also, it's around this time period where his grandfather dies in a, um, like in a malpractice, wrongful death sort of thing. His grandfather dies, uh, and he does get a settlement from it. He gets a settlement, a wrongful death settlement, I believe for malpractice. Uh, basically, as part of the settlement, it's distributed amongst his grandmother and the rest of the family. Uh, Miller gets about ten grand out of the settle- out of the settlement. He uses that ten grand to open up a record store in Richmond, California. Like I said, it's a part of the Bay Area. It's called No Limit Records, the No Limit Records store. Now, this record store opens around 1990. Um, it primarily sells rap music. It primarily sells rap music, almost exclusively rap music. Um, fairly early on, almost immediately, he installs a small record studio in the back of the record store, which is also makes his own record label, which he calls No Limit Records. So even though No Limit is synonymous with New Orleans, it actually starts in Richmond, California, in the Bay Area. Now, he, he finds fairly early on that he's able to make a lot more money off of underground records, like out of the small underground record releases, uh, because they have less overhead. They have a lot less overhead. The, uh, the money has to be split so many ways. Uh, pretty much, even though these underground records, they may not sell as much, he's able to keep more of the profit. Uh, for your much bigger rap records, uh, he's not retaining as much money off of it, and he's noticing that it's a fairly good uh, business arrangement for him. They have uh, significantly, these albums, these underground albums, these local albums, you know, the albums recorded by the guys coming into his uh, record studio, um, they, they have much smaller raw sales and a very small consumer base, but they are also drastically cheaper to produce. Um, he doesn't have to pay you know, wholesale prices. He doesn't have to deal with distributors. He's pretty much doing it himself and provides a much bigger return on investment. Uh, pretty much, you know, Master P owns the record label and the record space, so he's making money off both ends. And he could conceivably double his profits, if not more, because the overhead is so much less. I mean, if you're recording local artists, you know, if the average album in this time period, and the 90s, it's about 12 to $13, you know, and you're only keeping, let's say, a dollar from it, whereas if you make a local album, you know, an underground album, you sell it for $5, but you're keeping $3 off of it, you're making a lot more money with a lot less overhead. Uh, furthermore, Miller saved on signing artists and producers by leaning primarily on himself and his family members. Uh, pretty much the, the No Limit family, quote-unquote, legitimately was a family. Uh, primarily his brothers. Um, he was... Now, now, I will say this about Master P, and I don't think this will offend him, um, he's not exactly the greatest lyricist, nor is he the most talented producer in this time period, but he is adequate in this time period. Um, for instance, in late 1990, he makes his first album, as you'll see, it's called Getaway Clean. Uh, Getaway Clean is his first album. Um, he releases it uh, the very early 1991. He taps upon his brothers, uh, his brothers Corey uh, and Vashon, uh, Corey's better known as Seymour, Vashon is Silk the Shocker. Uh, they get him, to, they, he gets them to rap on the record. Uh, they call themselves uh, True, T R U, or The Real Untouchables. Now, to be fair to this album, all right, I'm about to say something which, once again, he might agree with me on this one. 
Um, as either an artistic piece of work or a technical achievement, the album was lacking, but it was profitable enough for him to record a second album in 1992 entitled Mama's Bad Boy, which also featured his brothers. I don't have a picture of that one, sadly, but as you can see, it's it's fairly low budget, but because it's so low budget and because he owns the retail space, he's making a lot more money off of this. The albums were sold primarily at his own record store, remember the No Limit record store? But he also partnered with Oakland-based In A Minute Records to gain more distribution within the Bay Area. Uh, when he starts out, Master P is pretty much just in the Bay Area, just, you know, at his store, a couple other spots around the Bay Area, primarily Oakland, uh, not so much in San Francisco. Like I said, he's a fairly young man in this time period, early 20s. Uh, he's making decent money off of this, and he's making a lot more money off of this than he is from the big-time records. You know, when something like Dr. Dre's Chronic or something comes out in this time period, he'll sell it, but he's actually keeping a lot more money from the sales of his own records, even though they're not as much. Uh, in 1994, he finds more success with The Ghetto Is Trying To Kill Me. Uh, this sells almost 100,000 copies exclusively within the Bay Area, which makes Percy Miller uh, quite a bit of money, considering it only costs him $1,000 to make. So if you, you know, <laughs> if you've made it for $1,000 and you're selling 100,000 copies of it, even if it's $5 a copy, and you're keeping anywhere from 3 to $4 of the sale because you made it yourself and you're doing the distribution yourself, uh, Master P is making a lot more money of this. I mean, that's one of the things I'll say about Master P. He makes a ton of money despite not having the highest sales because he gets a higher percentage of the profit. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, like I said, this gives them a ridiculous return on the investment. You know, it's it costs about a like I said, it costs a thousand dollars to make. He probably made at least three hundred, probably close to half a million dollars off that record, just within the Bay Area. In nineteen ninety five, he made ninety nine ways to die, which is more than double the sales of Ghetto. Um, the Ghetto was trying to kill me. It also had a higher production. It was more than a thousand dollars to make. Uh, however, it sells a lot more, and it's also selling more outside of the Bay Area. Uh, basically, it's starting to sell more in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, Masterpiece starting to get known, definitely very, very underground, very not incredibly known. However, he sells well enough to get on the Billboard charts for the first time. Now, it's also pretty interesting, in 1995, uh, he moves to New Orleans. In 1995, he moves back to New Orleans, bringing his record label with him. Uh, when, when Miller first leaves the city in 88, 89, uh, Southern rap was virtually unknown. It was not really seen as particularly lucrative on a large scale outside of two live crew. I mean, even New Orleans rap, or especially New Orleans rap, was not very well known. Uh, the success of a lot of different groups we're going to talk about more last week, uh, sorry, next week. Uh, groups like, uh, well, Rap-A-Lot Records, uh, headed up by the Ghetto Boys. Memphis has 8-Ball and MJ, MJG. Uh, the Two Live Crew is also kind of getting it more popular in the early 90s. It shows that there's a growing market for Southern rap. And although New Orleans had a lengthy music history, rap had not yet been a part of it. And whenever Miller returned to the city, he hoped to capitalize on this kind of untapped talent. Now, the, one, the most valuable thing Miller brings back with him when he comes to New Orleans, comes back to New Orleans from the Bay Area is a distribution deal. Uh, in 1995, right, right when he returns to New Orleans, pretty much he's negotiating with this when he makes the move back to New Orleans, 
Uh, he negotiates a deal with Priority Records. Priority Records is one of those big record distributors. He inks a ridiculously ludicrous five-year record deal, which is just ungodly. Um, a five-year record deal with Priority, which is the most advantageous record deal maybe in history. I don't think uh, Priority realized just how much money was about to get made, but it's about to get made. Here we go. In exchange for Percy Miller from Master P and No Limit producing the records, signing the stars, doing all this stuff, and pretty much only giving Priority distribution. So pretty much the only thing Priority Records had to do is distribute it. We're not talking about marketing. We're not talking about paying any money outside of... I mean, they're not even talking about manufacturing. They're literally talking about Priority Records. All they have to do is ship the records to stores. Do the logistics part of it. Which is basically saying Master P has to take a lot of the risk, which means a lot of the money. Priority Records would take 15 cents on the dollar for any record sold. Which means Master P got 85 cents on the dollar. Okay, that is ludicrous money. I, I, I need you to understand this. Like, for instance, like your biggest stars of the time, like traditional record label stars, like pop stars, or whatever you want to call them, like uh, who, who'd be in this time period in 96? A um, little early for like Britney Spears and the Backstreet Boys, but yeah, Madonna or something, or Ricky, Ricky Martin, that's purely for Ricky Martin, but whoever, your, your pop star of 1996, let's just say Madonna or Mariah Carey or something. The best record deal one of them ever got was Madonna's, and she was getting eight cents on the dollar, and her publicity had to come out of that. So, like, for every record Madonna sold, for every album Madonna sold, and she sold millions, but no, you know, nobody doubts her sales, she's only making eight cents on the dollar. Master P is making 85 cents on the dollar. So he only has to sell one-tenth of the records Madonna does to make Madonna money. Or, if you want to think about it another way, Madonna has to sell ten times the amount of records to make Master P money. This is the most ludicrous deal of all time. And this right here, if you want to know why, is the reason Master P gets rich. This is the reason right here that Master P makes more money than anybody else in rap music. This is the reason why Master P is able to be so generous and nice, because he is getting so much more money. Miller also, Master P, also got to keep the master recordings, which is another huge deal in the record industry. Remember, that was that was Suge Knight's one, you know, decent bit of a, a music advice, uh, you know, industry advice he was given was basically keep the master records. Priority didn't want it. Priority didn't think they were really going to make money off of this deal, but they knew that Master P was pretty popular, and they're taking so little risk. Uh, the first album that Miller releases on the No Limit Priority Partnership was 1996's Ice Cream Man. If you go over one slide, you will see Ice Cream Man. Uh, this sold an impressive 32,000 copies in its first week. So within its first week, Master P is making... Let's see. When he time he got to Priority, he's still selling it for about $10 a pop. So he made about a quarter of a million dollars in a week with his first deal. That's pretty good. You know what's even better? The next year, he puts out another album called Ghetto D. Sells in one week almost eight times the amount of its predecessor. You know, Ice Cream Man sells 32000 in one week. Uh, in the first week, Ghetto D sells about 
300000 About 300000 And he makes so much money off of this. Master P is selling a ton of it. Uh, he's starting to get a little bit more buzz. I mean, he, I mean, you know, 300,000 copies in a week is pretty good. I mean, it's not like Mariah Carey or Madonna or Dr. Dre sales. But when you're getting 85 cents on the dollar, you're making so much more money, it's not even funny. Uh, Miller follows up his triumph by releasing more albums from his brothers, as well as other New Orleans-based back, uh, rappers who signed on No Limit following Miller's return to the, to the city. Uh, Master P signs, starts signing up a lot of different New Orleans rappers, also starts signing up a lot of his brothers. By the time we get to 1998, so pretty much two years after the deal starts, in 1998, based upon what we're about to talk about, Master P and No Limit Records sell 26 million albums. Now, it's not just one album, because No Limit put out a million different albums. Like, No Limit was prolific for, for quantity over quality. I will, I will say that. 26 million records in 1998 was more than any other rap label. Uh, and like I said, they're not selling a ton of any one album. They're just putting out so many albums. 26 million records. If you're making 85 cents on the dollar, and let's say it's $10 a pop, because No Limit albums were generally $10 a pop, that is, you know, I'm actually going to do the math. Hang on a second. All right, I just did the math. Uh, if you sell 26 million copies at, let's say, $10 a pop, uh, and you get 85 cents on the dollar, the math is $22 million in one year. That is insane money. That is insane money, considering, like, his individual albums are not, like, charting high on the Billboard chart. It's just the sheer amount of them, and he's really tapping into a fairly niche market, which is primarily South Louisiana and some other places. But, like, there are people who sell way more than Master P does, like, individual acts, individual albums. But for the sheer quantity and the sheer amount of money he's getting on the, on, on for sales, nobody comes close. Now, if you go over one slide, we're going to talk about marketing P. All these are real. Uh, for instance, I, I wish I still had it, but that is the Master P doll, the Master P talking doll. You pull a string, he says, uh, there's some other stuff we'll talk about for a second. Uh, Miller's approach to the diversification of his business was not particularly cerebral and primarily focused on his own notoriety. Like, he's not overthinking this. He's making no limit whatever. Uh, for instance, he does movie making. In 1997 and 1998, he has two movies, uh, I'm About It and I Got the Hookup, where he's both the producer and the star. They are done very cheaply, like insanely cheaply, and they don't make tons of money. They're not making like a huge, you know, blocks off a splash, but because he owns such a high percentage, he's making money. Uh, he also merchandises himself. For instance, the 12-inch action figure, uh, kind of similar to the original G.I. Joe dolls, uh, it said, uh, na-na-na-na, make him say, uh, uh, Make Him Say Uh was probably his biggest single, came in 1997. Uh, only hits number 16 on the Billboard chart. That was by far No Limit's biggest single. And it only hits number 16. Um, and yet he's making so much more money. In addition, uh, he tries his hand at a sports agency. Uh, there's the No Limit Sports Agency, which actually signed uh, Heisman Trophy winner Ricky Williams to, a, uh, to basically be his representation. He had a disastrous deal with the New Orleans Saints. Um, it was very incentive-heavy, and it was ludicrous. Basically, the Saints didn't have to pay Rick Williams any money, 
unless he's like the greatest running back of all time. Uh, it was not the greatest record. It was not the greatest uh, deal for an athlete. Uh, later, it, it folds because it's not a very good sports agency, but still, it makes a huge splash. Uh, he has his own clothing company, as you see on the right. Uh, something pretty interesting, if you ever one more, is what it has to do with, with, his, with the NBA. I mentioned earlier that Miller was a pretty good basketball player in, in college, you know, even though he got hurt. Uh, he wanted to join the NBA. He thought he had the talent to go to the NBA. Uh, he tries out for the Charlotte Hornets in 1998. Actually gets, makes their preseason roster. He plays preseason games, and he just barely gets cut. Like, he was almost to the point where he could conceivably play. Uh, likewise, he did the same in 1999 with the Toronto Raptors. You'll see the picture of him with the Toronto Raptors in 1999. He does not make their preseason roster. Um, that was almost certainly a publicity stunt. With the Charlotte Hornets, it started out as a publicity stunt. Then they realized, hey, this guy's actually not a bad basketball player. He's actually a very good basketball player. Uh, it included other things, such as he had a phone sex line. He had a clothing line. Uh, the one that I gave you a clip of, this is one of those weird things, only in the 90s. Uh, he is actually part of a professional wrestling outfit with uh, WCW, um, which no longer exists, World Class Wrestling. Uh, they were the No Limit Soldiers. He had a cousin named Swole who wanted to become like a pro wrestler. And so basically for a while, Master P would come out and rap and wear camouflage and say all sorts of stuff as part of the wrestling thing. And although his notoriety was based in, uh, in rap music, by the late 90s, by the time we get to the turn of millennium, he was better known as an entrepreneur rather than a musician. And it's not really surprising that that's why Snoop Dogg would, would sneak him out. Um, you know, Marion Knight, Suge Knight, and promised pretty good sales and wealth. Uh, they found the actual awards fairly, well, uh, fairly, fairly underwhelming. Whereas Miller is actually giving money, like getting money despite having much smaller sales because he's just making so much off of it. Like he can give his artist more money and he still keeps more money than Suge Knight ever did. As Miller succinctly once stated, ain't no rappers at No Limit, we're entrepreneurs. Uh, if you watch the clip, which I have on Moodle, of Snoop Dogg talking about um, Master P., He's very kind to Master P. He's like, dude, that guy was awesome. I got paid. You know, uh, you know, I was only getting jewelry and stuff with Death Row, but when I got to No Limit, he got me a house in my name, a bank account, uh, a couple guns, and a car, all in my name. You know, that's stuff you wouldn't get from any other record label. Miller had succeeded in creating what Knight had claimed to be building at, no, at Death Row. Miller led an organization that would center around family which consistently produced profitable music even without having crazy good sales. In essence, No Limit was the closest any hip-hop label ever came to emulating Barry Gordy's Motown model, with the exception that Miller did not exercise the same amount of control over his artist image, uh, up to an extent. Uh, the way, another way that Miller was able to make a ton of money basically was... Uh, Escalating the production of his artists, of his records, uh, very much quantity over quality. Uh, for instance, No Limit records were typically double disc. Uh, they were very much padded out. If you listen to a No Limit album, it was always two disc. It always had globs of skits and loaded with advertisements for other No Limit products. Like any No Limit album is going to have tons of ads for other No Limit stuff. Uh, he used the same production team, had like pretty much no outside producers for anything. Uh, his in-house production team, it's called Beats by the Pound. 
which I think is a very, very accurate statement because quantity over quality. Just tons of them. Pretty much every No Limit artist appeared on every other No Limit artist album, period. Uh, if you go over to that one slide, you're going to see a Snoop Dogg's record with No Limit. Uh, there he is with uh, Top Dog. He does three albums with No Limit, and then he leaves fairly amicably. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, yeah, also, uh, Miller, you, for, for No Limit, uh, usually in this time period, CDs came in jewel cases, which you might be familiar with those, kind of the clear plastic uh, case. Um, he doesn't use that. He uses cheaper cardboard materials. Pretty much No Limit albums came in cardboard. They were cheaper to make and save Masterpiece like a little bit of money, which further lowered the price point. At a time where most CDs cost, uh, most albums were single albums, cost about $15 to $17, uh, No Limit's double disc were usually $10. So his, his idea is like basically, you know, hey, you're going to get a cheaper product, you're going to get more music, and you're gonna you're gonna get double the music if you buy a No Limit record. So even if you don't like it all, there's so much of it you you don't feel like you've been undersold. It's almost the pizza buffet model, or like a Golden Corral, where it's like you know it may not be the best food, but you're gonna get a lot of it. You're gonna feel like you got your money's worth. That was Master P's whole mindset with No Limit. Uh, when Miller moved to Baton Rouge, uh, it also increased with his. Uh, Increased interest in courting mainstream markets. Uh, this is where I kind of enter into the story very smallly. I was never signed to No Limit. I wish. Uh, actually, I don't wish. I, I would, I'd rather be on cash money. Anywho, um, I was in high school, middle school, high school, whenever No Limit moved to New Orleans. Uh, sorry, moved to Baton Rouge. Um, they were in the country club of Louisiana, which was a fairly well-to-do neighborhood in Baton Rouge, kind of on the outskirts of town, uh, down Highland Road, it, if you know Baton Rouge, you know where the Country Club is. Uh, by Blue Bayou, if you happen to know where that is in Baton Rouge. Um, pretty much Master P and Snoop Dogg and everybody, no limit. They kind of bought several houses next to each other in the Country Club, which is a pretty stodgy place. You know, fairly, you know, old, rich people live there. But then all these young rapper guys were coming in. Um, I, I did not live there. <laughs> I did not live in the Country Club by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, however, I did have friends from school who who did live in the country club, and you know that they, they talk about like, yeah, you know, I, my dad plays golf with Snoop Dogg now. Like he's the biggest gangster rap in the world, and now he's playing golf with him. Uh, Master B had a, made a full size NBA basketball court in his backyard at the at the country club, and you can clearly see it when it had the big no limit tank on it. Um, I had friends who went to Little Romeo's birthday parties. Uh, Little Romeo is Master P's son. Uh, they would go to his birthday parties and like, yeah, it's pretty cool, you know, whatever. Um, I never, I knew Snoop Dogg was around. I knew Snoop Dogg was around in Baton Rouge whenever I was in high school. Never saw him too, too much. Uh, the one I would see a bit more regularly was Master P. I, I saw Master P and his bodyguard several times, like, buying milk at the grocery store. Like, Master P is a regular dude, y'all. Like, uh, of course, he's probably, y'all are probably too young to really know him in his height, but, like, this was when he was, like, as big as he ever was. I remember going to the Dell Champs with my mom, and there's Master P wearing no-limit clothes and his bodyguard, also wearing no-limit clothes, like, wearing glasses, buying milk. Like, the most normal thing on the planet to do, just buy a gallon of milk from the grocery store. And it was really interesting to see that. So, like, the entire time I was in high school, like, I knew No Limit and Cash Money, weirdly enough. Cash Money was in Baton Rouge for a hot second as well. Or just down the street from me, theoretically speaking. 
But when he moves to Baton Rouge, uh, he also really gets to more into the mainstream. If you go over one side, you'll see him getting into the mainstream. Uh, in particular, that does go with his with his son Romeo, Romeo, little Romeo. Uh, basically, Romeo is kind of pushed by his dad to be the big new hot thing. Kind of is in a, in a sense. Um, he he in two thousand uh, in two thousand one, I should say. I'm sorry. Uh, Romeo becomes the youngest artist ever to have the number one Billboard hit uh, with My Baby. Um, ironically, this is Master P's biggest song, period. Uh, the biggest gangster rap song was Make Him Say Uh. The biggest song he does, period, is My Baby by Little Romeo, which actually goes number one on the Billboard charts. It is very much pop rap. It is very much like Crisscross, Cross, Vanilla Ice. Uh, the music video, I, I did not give you the music video for this, but... I would recommend you look it up just because it's a weird one. Um, like it's got a Michael Jackson impersonator in it. It's Romeo running around the mall chased by prepubescent girls. Like it's it's a weird one, but whatever. Oh, it samples um, "I Want You Back" extensively, which is the Jackson Five song. Ironically, Little Romeo was younger than uh, Michael Jackson was whenever Michael Jackson hit number one with "I Want You Back." Little Romeo hit number one on Billboard even younger with. Um, my baby. Uh, this song gives Miller way more exposure in the pop markets. Uh, pretty much as we end 2001, uh, Miller's, you know, Masterpiece starts trying to sign like any teeny bopper act he possibly can, like super teeny bopper music. Uh, the two that I want you to know about is he, he makes a boy band called Six Piece, which there they is at the bottom, even though there's only five of them. Go figure. Uh, go figure. Six Piece was the all white boy band that Masterpiece tried to make a thing. Uh, good luck finding songs by them. Uh, the only one that I really remember was they did like a patriotic one, like right after 9 11, where like they're all wearing like like red, white, and blue denim jackets without a shirt on. It was it was actually pretty funny. And then his Britney Spears wannabe, Sarah Lynn. Uh, Britney Spears, if you're familiar with Britney Spears, I'm sure she's from Louisiana. Uh, Sarah Lynn was supposed to be the No Limit version of um, Britney Spears. She does one song with Master P. It goes absolutely nowhere. Uh, still, 2001 also marks the end of No Limit's very good deal with Priority. Uh, Priority was the one that gave No Limit the 85 split when it comes to the money. Uh, basically, Priority's parent company, EMI, merged with Capitol Records. And basically... Uh, Priority said, "All right, all right, Master P, you're gone." I uh, basically they didn't. They thought he was making too much money. You know, they they wanted more money for how big he was. Uh, basically, he is able to negotiate a, a different deal with Universal slash Motown. So, ironically, yeah, Master P signed with Motown for a while. Uh, the terms were nowhere near as favorable as the earlier Priority deal had been. Pretty much, Master P makes his money from 1996 to 2001 because he's getting 85 cents on the dollar. If you know anybody in the music business, they will like their mind will be blown by how how great of a deal that was. Still, uh, Miller's profile kept raising in the bubblegum pop world, primarily through his son Romeo. Uh, later on, you might remember this when you were a kid. Little Romeo does a show in Nickelodeon where Master P is kind of the dopey dad figure. Um, you know, he, he's he's shown as being super rich on the show, but still kind of dopey. Uh, kind of a kind of a guy, just kind of a you know klutzy dad figure, and that kind of does it for uh, for Bastard P. Oh, I should mention also in two thousand one, uh, Snoop Dogg left No Limit, 
pretty much the deal was for three albums. Snoop Dogg did his three albums. And he left on very friendly terms with Master P. I cannot iterate that enough. Um, there was no hard feelings. Uh, basically, they were good for both sides. Snoop felt, he, you know, Snoop felt that he had a pretty good fi- financial footing. Uh, Master P more than made up his million or two million dollars he had to give Suge Knight for the rights to Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg made money for the first time in his career. He felt that Master P gave him a model that he could emulate with his own uh, record label, which he namely does. Uh, Doggy Style is the name of Snoop Dogg's record label he founds. Uh, Snoop Dogg's profile actually kind of rises in 2002 when he starts doing stuff with Pharrell. We'll talk about later on. And if you watch the interview, which I, you know, I gave you up there on Moodle, I would highly recommend you watch it. Uh, Snoop Dogg, to this day, has nothing bad to say about Master P. Like, Snoop Dogg's kind of cagey when it comes to Suge, you know. Uh, him and him and Dre are okay, but, like, you know, they, they've done plenty of songs together. Uh, however, Snoop Dogg, you will never hear him say anything bad about Master P. He's like, you know, Master P, man saved my life, made me money. Got me paid. Got nothing but good things to say about him. Now, if you go over one slide, I, I should mention, it, it, you know, I have to say this. Uh, no Limit is not the only record label in New Orleans making money during this time period. In fact, they're making a ton of money. Uh, the other one would be Cash Money Records. Uh, Cash Money Records, if you go over one more slide, it was started by two brothers, uh, Brian and, Roland, and Ronald Williams, uh, better known as Baby and Slim. Uh, Baby, you know Baby from Cash Money Records, one of the big timers. Uh, Ronald Williams, Slim Williams, doesn't really rap or do anything. He's just really tall. He is just, like, insanely, stupidly tall. Um, They started, and they actually predate No Limit a little bit. Um, Cash Money Records starts in the very early 90s. Like, in the super early 90s, that's when uh, Cash Money gets its start. Uh, Very much an underground thing within New Orleans. However, it also is helped a lot by the success of No Limit. Uh, no Limit is selling you know, a lot in California. A lot of people say that like No Limit is actually like California-style Bay Area rap in New Orleans, whereas Cash Money is like New Orleans-style rap music, bounce rap, that sort of thing. Uh, Cash Money becomes a national institution as well. Uh, thanks to having actually one of the biggest acts in rap for a while, if you go over one more slide, you will see the Hot Boys. You will see the Hot Boys. The Hot Boys, they were hot. Like, they were super popular. Uh, they have a lot more consistent national hits than No Limit does. Like, No Limit is, like, they're making they're making money just for the sheer quantity, and they're making decent sales. Uh, Cash Money is making a lot more sales, particularly with the Hot Boys. Uh, bring with two members of the Hot Boys, that'd be Juvenile and Lil Wayne, uh, both of whom have massive, massive hits. Uh, for instance, Juvenile has Back That Thing Up, which I gave you the link for. Um, that is probably the quintessential New Orleans turn of the century, you know, turn of the millennium rap song. It's Juvenile, it's theoretically not the Hot Boys, even though all four of them appear on it. Uh, Lil Wayne comes out on that as well. He, he tells you to drop it like it's hot at the end. Uh, Little Wayne, still one of the biggest names in rap music, uh, starts out as a kid. Uh, he starts out very young with Cash Money. He's like 14, 15 years old when he signs his first deal with Cash Money. Uh, if you listen to his earliest stuff, he's not allowed to curse. Uh, his grandmother pretty much promises him not to curse on his earliest rap records, and he doesn't. Uh, later on, he will stop cur- start cursing. Uh, if you watch the, the video at the very end when Little Wayne tells him to drop it like it's hot, 
you're going to see a very young, very tattoo-free little Wayne. Uh, however, unlike No Limit, Cash Money's distri distribution deal wasn't quite as generous as those of Master P and No Limit. Uh, they were popular, and they certainly make money, like they make good money, but nowhere near as much as Master P, and not as consistently. Uh, there's also a lot of questions about the Williams Brothers' management. Uh, there's a lot of people on Cash Money, pretty much outside of Little Wayne, who feel that, like, basically uh, the Williams Brothers are not being fair, kind of like a Suge Knight, Barry Gordy situation where the record label owner is taking a lot more of the profit than everybody else. You know, they'll give gifts but not give money. Uh, then again, the same could be possibly said about Master P when it comes to his family. Uh, pretty much Master P was most generous to his family, gave them pretty good deals, and also Snoop Dogg. Uh, you don't have as many complaints about Master P, though. Basically, uh, Baby and, and Roland, particularly, particularly Baby, are really kind of hailed as being the ones who are like, eh, maybe taking too much money. Still, I can't iterate, the late 90s and early 2000s are a very good time for New Orleans rap music. Pretty much the Louisiana scene in general. It's never really any bigger. Um, Ma Master P has kind of faded into the distance by this time period. He's still worth well over $100 billion. Like, Master P is, you know, for all of his, you know, hip-hop lifestyle or whatever, he genuinely didn't waste that much money. He he still has well into nine figures when it comes to the amount of money he has. Uh, Cash Money Records had a bit more problems. Little Wayne's doing pretty good, but everybody else is not doing quite as well. Uh, still, they're 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 around. Uh, I know I saw Manny Fresh, who was one of the big producers for Cash Money, uh, perform at a Pelicans game during the playoffs. And, and, and Juvenile came up and did back that thing up, and it was like the most New Orleans thing to ever happen, and it was incredible. So that kind of ends that one thread. Snoop Dogg leaves, uh, leaves Death Row, goes to No Limit, and actually does okay. Um, he could have faded into obscurity, but he doesn't. Things go okay. So the second thread was, what's going to become of Dr. Dre? Uh, Dr. Dre has got his new label, Aftermath, uh, trying to figure out who's going to make up his new talent, What's he going to do? You know, how's he going to find somebody? Remember, he's not the greatest rapper of himself. Uh, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. He finds somebody named Marshall Mathers who does amazing. Go over one slide. You're going to see him with Marshall Mathers, a.k.a. Eminem. Uh, Marshall Mathers III was born in St. Joseph, Missouri in 1972 to a very dysfunctional family. Uh, his father left when he was young, and he and his mother spent a great deal of time bouncing around from place to place, mainly around Missouri, mainly in the Midwest, before ultimately landing in Detroit. Uh, in Detroit, he's pretty much the only white kid in a predominantly uh, African-American neighborhood, primarily working to lower-class African-American neighborhood. Um, his mom had various drug habits when he was a kid, and his life was uh, turbulent, to say the least. Uh, he discovers rap music fairly early on, feels like it speaks to him, feels like it speaks to his situation. Uh, he drops out of school at age 17. He got held back several times. Uh, really doesn't do all that much for quite a while, except for rap. Um, you know, kind of works in various dead-end jobs, uh, make, trying to make rap happen. Uh, he does put out some indie rap records in Detroit, but they go, like, absolutely nowhere, uh, mainly around 1996. Uh, he also has a daughter in this time period, a very turbulent relationship with his ex-wife, Kim. Uh, his records are, are kind of hard to categorize in this time period, if we're talking, like, 96. Uh, because he's a rap guy rapping, sorry, he's a white guy rapping, but he is not Vanilla Ice. 
Uh, a lot of lot of lot of white music people suggest maybe you should get into rock and roll. You know, a white guy rapping. If you're not Vanilla Ice, that was just kind of a one hit wonder thing. They don't see that there's a lot of future in uh, a white person rapping. Uh, they suggest you get into rock and roll. Uh, same things. Rap people and black music executives also suggest, hey, maybe you should get into rock and roll. There's really no place for a white guy rapping. Uh, he does have a little group that he has. There's a member. He's a group that he's a part of. Uh, called D12, uh, short for the Dirty Dozen. Uh, it's six MCs from around um, Detroit. They all claim to have their, uh, you know, they're, they're 12, though, because they each have their, like, kind of uh, alter ego. Uh, his alter ego, you know, his, his stage name is Eminem, which is pretty much his two initials, Marshall Mathers, M and M. His kind of alter ego, though, is Slim Shady, who basically, in the spring of 97, he releases a Slim Shady EP which is way more graphic and dark, but also weirdly sadistically cheerful than his other music. Like, he could be a bit more dark, but also a bit more weirdly cheerful about it, like a gleeful sadist. Uh, that's the one that kind of gets him on the rap. That's the one that gets, starts getting me a little attention. Um, in very late 1997, he goes to Los Angeles to compete in the Rap Olympics, which is like kind of a freestyle rap contest. Um, he finishes second, ultimately. That's not really what's important. What's important is that a talent scope from Interscope happens to be there. Remember, Interscope is Jimmy Iovine's company. He just has a new partnership with Dr. Dre and Aftermath. And pretty much the Interscope guy's like, hey, uh, you're really good. You're, you know, you're appealing. Do you have like a, a demo or something? And, and Eminem gives him a copy of the Slim Shady EP, uh, listens it. Li- you know, Jimmy Iovine listens to it, absolutely loves it, uh, plays it for Dr. Dre. And Dr. Dre at first is like, man, you know, you never find anybody good on these little demo tapes. And then he's like, this kid's really good. And he's like, you know what? I don't care if he's black or white or whatever. We got to sign this kid. I can make something with him. So 1999, if you go over one slide, that's really Eminem's coming out party. Uh, He has two coming out parties in 1999. Uh, The first is his own album, the Slim Shady LP, which goes quadruple platinum. Uh, It's way darker than white rap had been before. Like, you've had things like the Beastie Boys. You've had things like Vanilla Ice, uh, Third Base. I think I just named all the white rappers before. Um, it's way darker, like like much darker in subject matter. Even though it's it's weirdly gleeful too, it's also immediately controversial. Uh, a lot of his subject matter talks about like violence towards his ex wife, uh, a lot of misogyny, a lot of homophobia in his lyrics. Uh, what's really weird is for considering how uh, controversial it is, it is tremendously promoted on MTV, like weirdly promoted super high on MTV to the level that no other pop, non-pop rapper had been before. Like, yeah, Dr. Dre might get played on, no, on Yo! MTV raps. Um, Eminem's on every part of MTV, which is weird, because he's really critical of MTV. Like, he's saying a lot of stuff, like, against the music scene, against MTV, against all this, like, teeny boppers, and they are promoting the hell out of them. It seems like they can't get enough of them. Uh, the second coming out party Eminem has in 1999 is on Dr. Dre's album 2001, okay? I know the album's called 2001, it's the year 1999. Don't think too hard about it. Um, basically, the long story short is that it was originally going to be called Chronic 2000, but the name Chronic 2000 was uh, trademarked by Death Row. But since they were both under Interscope, they're like, hey, maybe we'll both release a Chronic 2000 and let the customers decide who's going to take what. Uh, Interscope doesn't really want them to do that, so they go with, okay, we're going to call it the, ta- the Chronic 2001. Then Def Jam said, we retain the rights of the name Chronic, 
So pretty much it was just released as 2001. Everybody called it Chronic 2001, even though it was released in 1999. Uh, this album has Eminem kind of in the Snoop Dogg position. Not really a coming out party, but kind of an affirmation that he wasn't a novelty, that he had quote-unquote bonafides. Um, you know, he, he, he does songs on this album that kind of iterate, hey, doc, I get street cred with Dr. Dre. I'm not just a novelty. Um, as time went, Eminem's star continued to rise. He has an even bigger album in 2000 with the Marshall Mathers LP. Yes, there's loads of controversy, but he's still consistently getting, like, publicity. Like, lots of publicity, lots of promotion. Even whenever he, like, makes fun of NSYNC and um, Christina Aguilera on MTV, he's still getting heavily promoted by MTV. Uh, ironically, Dr. Dre stopped putting out albums because of the success of Eminem. Uh, pretty much, Dr. Dre didn't need to make albums anymore. He was making tons of money being a record producer. Um, he doesn't put out an album, I want to say, for like 16 years. I want to say Compton comes out in 2015. So, like, for a long time, Dr. Dre doesn't even put out an album. Uh, Dr. Dre later makes some headphones, and he makes even more money than he ever had before. <laughs> Go figure. Uh, so, by 2001, white rappers are pretty set with Eminem. Like, you know, white rap is now a much more, I guess, acceptable, non-novelty part of the rap rap music, and Dr. Dre gets his happy ending. So, Aftermath could have fallen apart, but you know what? Dre kind of gets a happy ending. So, that's another happy thing that happens. The final loose thread we're going to discuss is, it's another one of the things that I wrote about, so bear with me, has to do with who's going to become king of New York. You know, now that Biggie's gone... <laughs> Who's going to become the, the rapper that kind of headlines New York, kind of represents, uh, you know, the New York state of mind, if you will. Um, you know, th there, yes, there is Puffy, Puff Daddy, who has catapulted his star. He's probably one of the most famous rappers out there. Um, he's very busy selling things. Uh, he's dating J-Lo in this time period. Uh, he throws one of his protégés shine under the bus for weapons possession, That something that clearly Puff Daddy was clear, uh, clearly guilty of. Um, it's actually after this trial that he changes his name to Diddy and goes even more mainstream. That's something we're going to talk about later. But uh, this is, you know, this is a time period where, like, Puffy's seen as the king of, like, the commercial, uh, seen as the king of, um, you know, promotion, mainstream music. But who's going to take the, you know, the crown as king of New York? Uh, there's two real claimants who could, who could go for the crown. You see them right there. You got Nas and Jay-Z. Jay-Z and Nas. Uh, they represent two different styles and mentalities for hip-hop. And I should mention, there's also considerable concern about whether a battle could occur without bloodshed. Like, are they really going to be able to take really hard shots at each other? Like, or is it just going to be kind of a mamby-pamby, wimpy battle? Like, you know, are, are they really going to go at each other, or are they going to, like, blunt their, blunt their blows, you know, hold some punches, because they don't want bloodshed to occur? So let's talk about these claimants for a while. All right. On the one hand, the earlier one, you got Nas. Uh, Nasir bin Ola, sorry, Nas bin Uludara Jones. Nas bin Uludara Jones was born in Queens in 1973. Um, he, his parents moved to, sorry, he was born in Brooklyn in 1973, but his parents moved to Queens when he was very, very young. He's, he's almost synonymous with Queens. Weirdly enough, both these guys are synonymous with Queens. Uh, his father was Uludara Jones, who was a jazz musician originally from Mississippi, uh, his mom was a postal worker. Uh, his parents do not have a very good marriage. Um, his dad was apparently running around a little too, little bit too much, 
kind of doing his doing his own thing. Uh, his mom wanted somebody a little bit more stable. You know, wanted somebody to help raise her children. Uh, as a kid, Nazir Jones uh, or Nas, whatever you want to call him, um, his rap name of Nas is just a shortened version of his name. His real name is Nasir. Um, he's a pretty introspective as a child. Uh, very intelligent, despite the fact that he drops out of middle school. Um, drops out of middle school. He claims he doesn't like the curriculum. There's also some influence by his dad, in particular, about Afrocentrism. They say that the um, the school system is not really teaching things that he needs to know about, like black leaders and black thought. Um, Nas is is primarily self taught. Uh, after he drops out of school, he's a very intelligent guy. That that's something that's really not questions. He he's intelligent, but he's not very educated, if that makes sense. Like, he's intelligent, he's smart, he doesn't have a lot of formal education. He's very self-educated, if that makes sense. I don't mean to say he's not educated. He is educated, but, like, he's self-educated. He's not... He doesn't have degrees in the traditional sense. Uh, when he's teaching himself, he's learning very heavily upon 5 percenter mentality, which we talked about earlier. Uh, some Nation of Islam, a lot of Afrocentric stuff. A lot of Afrocentric stuff. He's kind of self-teaching himself. In a sense, he's kind of a continuation of the uh, Africa Bombada style of rap music. Um, he's seen as, and very much as kind of like the quote-unquote pure and unspoiled version of hip-hop. It's so sort of like, you know, it's gone too commercial, and, you know, we need somebody to kind of bring back the, the original good, quote-unquote pure hip-hop, hip-hop as it was supposed to be. Uh, this is really felt in his first release. If you have one slide, you will see his first release, uh, Illmatic. Uh, Illmatic was released in 1994. It's a bona fide hip-hop classic. Um, he's talking about his life in Queens from the perspective of a young man such as himself. Uh, his rhymes are very complex, very literary. Uh, you can tell he spent a lot of time writing it, like writing down his rhymes, perfecting the internal you know, wordplay. He's got a lot of slant rhyme, loads of internal rhyme, kind of interesting rhythms, uh, you know, kind of kind of you know, different time period. If you, if you look at his, like, you can annotate one of some of his lyrics, and you can tell that they are technically very impressive, if that makes sense. Like, there's a lot of good technical internal rhyme. Uh, he basically talks about, like, you know, life in, the, life in Queens, life in the ghetto, uh, life kind of as, as a nihilist, uh, you know, life's a bee and then you die, that sort of thing. Uh, he's not really the instigator in this album. It, it, it seems like almost as an antidote to um, gangster rap. Like, he's talking about violence and bad things going on, but he's not really the instigator, if that makes sense. Like, in something like Straight Outta Compton or, or other gangster rap, they're talking as though, like, we're the instigators, we're the danger. Uh, Nas is kind of rapping about, like, yeah, there's danger around here, but it's not really me. This is critically hailed, uh, beyond critically hailed. I, I cannot iterate how much the critics adored this album. Like, a lot of hip-hop purists, quote-unquote, Love this album. It, it gets, like, album of the year by every rap magazine out there. Uh, it really doesn't do too much in terms of sales or radio play, though. So, like, even though critics love it, even though the hip-hop heads, like, adore it, uh, when it comes to, like, radio play um, or, or sales, it really doesn't do much of anything. Partially because it has no really good singles. Um to put it frank, it's more like sitting in your room with like your headphones on, kind of chilling music, not rolling down the street, you know, with your you know stereo turned up, uh, with the windows down, or party music. Like you get the point. Like there, there are different songs for different times. 
Like, you know, there, there's a time where you just want to, like, you know, sit in your room, you know, play some, put some headphones on and just kind of zone out to the music. And there's other times where you want to have, like, party dance music. This is not party dance music by any stretch of the imagination, which is very much unlike West Coast music. Uh, still, a lot of great expectations were placed upon Nas thanks to this album. Like, a lot of great expectations. Uh, in a general sense that he's going to bring back hip-hop from the West Coast, bring it to a more pure place, get it to what it used to be. Not the most uncommon thing in this time period. Uh, for instance, also in 1994, a Chicago rapper by the name of Common, you might be familiar with him as an actor now, uh, he puts out a song called I Used to Love Her, which has the same sort of mentality of criticizing gangster rap as somehow removing hip-hop from the pure essence of it. The problem was his next couple of albums do nothing at all. Like, nothing really hits. They, they're they not as critically acclaimed as Illmatic, and uh, he doesn't ever really get great sales. He seems very stuck in the milieu of, well, he's good, but he's not great. Um, he can't really seem to break out of all of his expectations. You know, Maybe expectations are placed too high upon him. Maybe they're expecting too much. Uh, he just never really seems to... Uh, to really do anything with it. I mean, for instance, in 1998, he is signed to Aftermath as part of The Firm, which is like a, a hip-hop supergroup. Uh, nothing really ever happens there. I mean, Eminem is a much bigger star for Aftermath than Nas ever was. Also, if you go over one slide, uh, he does even do some work in 2000 with Puffy, with Puff Daddy, um, with a song called Hate Me Now, which was very controversial for a reason you will see as soon as you see that picture. Um, basically, Nas has himself as, like, a Jesus figure, and, like, he gets crucified in the in the song. And, you know, it's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that's very easy to misinterpret. He's like, I, I, I you know, I don't believe I'm God, this sort of thing. It, it doesn't go over too well. By the time we get to, 19, to 2001, uh, Nas has had a string of fairly unsuccessful hits, He's still hailed as a like as legit. He's still hailed as somebody who's going to have like great expectations for him, but he's never really able to get the job done. There just seemed to be something that like kind of withholding him from hitting the next label. So it's not too surprising when he starts taking shots at the guy who is hailed as the king of New York in Biggie's absence. That'd be one Sean Corey Carter, uh, aka Jay Z. If you go over one slide, there's Jay Z at the Marcy Projects. Now, this is a guy I've written a lot about, so bear with me. <laughs> Jay-Z. So, Sean Corey Carter, he's born in the Marcy Projects of, Book of Brooklyn in 1969. So, he's a little bit older than Nas, a little bit older than Nas. Uh, born to a single mother. Uh, his background is, ironically, fairly similar to Biggie's. Uh, fairly similar to Biggie's. And that he drops out of school. Um, he's a decent student when he's in school. Uh, starts selling drugs. A uh, little bit more of a drug dealer than Biggie ever was. Uh, Biggie mainly sold um, marijuana, like Sean Carter, Jay-Z was selling co uh, crack, cocaine at points. Uh, gets into fights into his siblings. There's an apocryphal story about how he supposedly uh, shot at his brother for stealing stuff from him. Apparently his brother tried to steal his jewelry, so Jay-Z tried to shoot his brother. Likewise, supposedly he got shot a couple times while he was dealing drugs. A lot of different stories about what Jay-Z was doing in his late teens. Uh, I cannot definitively say one way or the other what he was doing. The the stories get murky. Uh, what I can say with fair certainty is that 
he was a bit more of a drug dealer than like Biggie ever was, and he was selling stuff harder than marijuana. Not sure how hard, but probably crack cocaine. What is known is while he's doing this, he becomes friends or acquainted with and begins learning how to rap thanks to a guy by the name of J.O. or his other stage name is Jazz in the late 80s. In fact, if you've ever one slide, you're going to see Jay-Z's first appearance ever in a music video, which is Hawaiian Sophie. In fact, if you go to Moodle, you will see I have Hawaiian Sophie on Moodle. Um, it's a song I guarantee you've never heard of. It's a novelty song. It's a novelty song by J.O., a.k.a. Jazz, where basically he talks about how he go, how he went to Hawaii with his friend Jay-Z and he met a really cute girl. It, it's almost like Will Smith rap and just the it's telling a story type of mentality. Uh, however, you will see Jay-Z is in it, not even acting as a hype man. He's a very cool hype man. Cool is in the sense of like he's not talking very much. Like every once in a while he'd be like, yeah, that's right, Jay, or Jazz, what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't really make an impression, but he does give the name Jay-Z as a moniker. Uh, it's kind of a variation of the term jazzy, but also a variation of his mentor's name. Uh, you know, J-O or Jazz. So he's Jay-Z. Uh, throughout the early 90s, Jay-Z perfects his rapping. Uh, nothing very big. He's still doing a little bit of drug dealing. Uh, he's probably de-escalated his drug dealing this time period, though, because he is doing stuff with J-O at points of, at different times of, of life. His breakthrough, however, happens in 1996 with Reasonable Doubt which is weirdly similar to uh, Illmatic in some ways. Uh, to make this album that he wants to make, he actually forms his own record label. If you go over one more slide, you will see the original founders of this record label. Uh, he forms his own record label with Damon Dash and Kareem Biggs-Burke. Uh, they named the record label Rockefeller. Uh, this allows him to keep more of his own money from the records he's selling out of his car. Uh, he, unlike Master P, he never has like his own record store. Rockefeller never has that. Primarily, they're just selling it out of their car. Um, the, the triumvirate that is Rockefeller in, in its heyday is a very interesting um, very interesting dynamic. You have Jay-Z, who's the rapper of the, of, the, of the three. Then you have Damon Dash. If you look at the picture, there's Damon Dash on the left. Uh, Damon Dash is kind of like the salesman, the pitchman. Like, he's the guy who will sell anything. Like, you know, he, he can sell ice to, a, to an Eskimo-type person. You know, he, he could sell sand to a camel, whatever. Uh, he will market anything and everything. Uh, he doesn't really rap, ever, really. He's just kind of the, the salesman, of, as you will. He's like kind of the marketing guy. And then you have Kareem Biggs-Burke. Um, he's quiet. That's the only way I can describe him. He's, I mean, if you ever meet Jay-Z, Jay-Z will talk somewhat. Nobody talks as much as Damon Dash. You'll never meet anybody who talks remotely near as much as Damon Dash. That man can talk. Uh, Kareem, though, he's Biggs, he's he, he's quiet. Um, what exactly is he doing as part of this group? He's primarily the money man. He's primarily the money man. He's the main one who's, like, financing a lot of the early Rockefeller stuff. Uh, there are rumors that it might be money laundering from drug dealing. We don't know. Um, unlike Jay-Z, who's talked about his past in drug dealing, um, nobody seems to know how, how Burke got his money. He just seems to have it. Now, the album itself of Reasonable Doubt is, is something more like, uh, it's not even quite gangster rap. It's more of what people would call mafioso rap. Um, it's a bit different than gangster rap because it's talking more about opulence and crime. Kind of like this, uh, you know, Godfather, Frank Sinatra, Scarface, uh, Italian Mafia, like, yeah, we're doing bad stuff, but, you know, we're, 
We're dressing fancy. We're wearing suits. We're you know at fancy nightclubs. We're making money. Uh, a lot of gangster rap talks about crime, but not necessarily like making money. Money. Uh, Jay Z's rap of mafioso rap is a bit more uh, high dollar, high dollar, high, high opulence. I would say uh, a bit more the wish fulfillment. Uh, we've talked quite a bit how a lot of uh, how a lot of rap music, a lot of gangster rap music, was vicarious release. Uh, vicarious, you know, living through someone else. Um, you could argue that's kind of the case with mafioso rap going even more so. It's like you're not part of the danger. You're living kind of this, like, opulent, ridiculous lifestyle. Uh, it's not the biggest hit commercially, but ironically, it's similar enough to Illmatic that it's very critically acclaimed. It is super critically acclaimed, nowhere near as high as Illmatic, but pretty uh, uh, critically acclaimed. Um, it is actually remarkable that he is able to get a song with uh, the Notorious B.I.G., which is interesting because uh, Biggie's on a much higher level than Jay-Z is in this time period. Like, Jay-Z paid some money to get Biggie on his album. They do a song, Brooklyn's Finest. Theoretically, it's seen uh, after Biggie dies that basically, you know, Big agreeing to do this album was pretty much naming Jay-Z his successor. In actuality, Biggie wanted some money for a verse. Jay-Z was willing to pay for the verse. Now, Reasonable Doubt is not a big hit. I, can't, I cannot iterate that enough, but it raises his profile high enough to get a distribution deal with Def Jam in 1997. Uh, Russell Simmons, who I will never not talk about Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons is also around in this time period. He's trying to kind of outsource his AR to different record labels. Kind of a similar deal to what Priority does with, uh, with No Limit. However, Rockefeller's deal with Def Jam was nowhere near as generous. Uh, Rockefeller's making decent money, but it's closer to 20 25 cents on the dollar as opposed to No Limit's 85 cents on the dollar. Uh, this lets Rockefeller stay theoretically independent while getting the resources of a much mar- larger label. Uh, Simmons doesn't really think too much of this time, but he thinks there could be some commercial success. Uh, what Jay-Z gets with, with uh, signing with Def Jam for distribution is not just distribution, but also marketing. Um, Jay-Z needs to help with marketing, and so basically his songs start getting a lot more commercial. Uh, His first album with Def Jam was In My Lifetime, Volume 1. Has some decent hits. Uh, Most interestingly, he does songs with Puff Daddy. That is something interesting about both Jay-Z and Nas. For being adversaries, they both do songs with Puff Daddy. Um, I Know What Girls Want. And also he does a song with Babyface, who's a producer who's pretty big. Uh, The song Sunshine, which I don't give you a link to, but you can find it. It is the personification of, sci- of shiny suit rap. Uh, if you've never seen um, Jay-Z rap shiny suit-wise, you're going to see it, and boy is it weird. Now, if you go over one side, you're going to see his big great breakthrough. Uh, the thing that gets him tons of mainstream attention is in 1998 with uh, Volume 2, Hard Knock Life. Uh, that's his album. Uh, the main reason he gets notoriety is the single. The lead single, the title single of Hard Knock Life, Samples the musical Annie. Um, the musical Annie is the musical about Annie, little orphan Annie, like the little white girl with red hair who's got a dog during the Great Depression. Yeah, Jay-Z samples, like, extensively the opening song of It's a Hard Knock Life. Like, this is not just like, oh, here's a bass line. It is, it is It's a Hard Knock Life. Like, it has the same chorus of It's a Hard Knock Life. This should be death to street cred. This should be like, oh my gosh, this is too commercial. This is something that, like, this should not be a thing. Ironically, 
it works like gangbusters. This is a huge hit. This raises like Jay-Z's profile more than anything else. Um, I will speak of a time period. Uh, my mother, both my parents are classically trained musicians, like classical music, um, and also a lot of church music. But they also really got into musicals. And so like, growing up, like a lot of what I listened to was musicals. And I remember the first time I heard this, I was like, that's Annie. And then whenever my mom heard it, she's like, that's Annie. And like, even though she didn't appreciate like all the cursing and bad talk, she appreciated like, wow, that rap guy knows about Annie. And so like, God bless my mother. She was weirdly okay with Jay-Z. She liked Kanye better, but she was weirdly okay with Jay-Z. Uh, this raises Jay-Z's profile like nothing else. All of a sudden he's become like a household name. His next several albums go amazing. Um, as more about his past comes out, he's seen as a legit gangster, but also a commercial darling. Like, the fact that his, his past in drug dealing actually makes him more popular. So he's almost like an antithesis to, to Nas. Because, like, Nas is hailed as, like, oh, he's just kind of this, you know, introspective kid, self-taught, never sold drugs, you know, this critical, you know, intellectual darling. And yet, Jay, but who can't get commercially done. And Jay-Z's like, hey, this guy was a real straight-up drug dealer, and... He's making commercial money. Now, to be fair to Jay-Z, Jay-Z is super prolific in his output in this time period. Like, Jay-Z's putting out one to two albums a year. Uh, supposedly, this is apocryphal. I, I'll just tell you the story as I heard it, and then I will tell you my spin to it. But supposedly, Jay-Z never wrote anything down. Like, ever. Apparently, Jay-Z would go to the studio, listen to a track one or two times, sit for ten minutes and then spit out completely, like, classics. Unlike Nas, who, like, very much takes a lot of time to come up with very complex stuff. Uh, if you're talking about, like, technical ability, Nas is better than Jay-Z. Uh, Nas's rhymes are much more complex than Jay-Z's. It's not to say that Jay-Z's rhymes are simplistic. They're not. Jay-Z's a phenomenal rapper in his own right. However, Nas has slightly more technically advanced rhymes. So by the summer of 2001, Jay-Z had achieved more commercial success that Nas could ever dream of, and he is being hailed as the king of New York. And in the summer of 2001, both have albums coming out, and it's only natural that some kind of contention would spill over when it comes into the promotion. And that's how you get, go over one slide, war. This is the actual battle. War begins. Picture there, there's Jay-Z at SummerSlam. Go, Summer Jam, go figure. So there have been some light contention and jabs at each other over the years, there have been various albums, various lyrics where they're like, hey, they kind of make mention of each other. Uh, nobody really knows why there was so much contention with it between the two. Um, probably the best guess about what happened was early on, um, for Reasonable Doubt, which was done in 96, uh, Jay-Z asked for Nas to be on the album to do a guest verse. He was going to pay him to do a guest verse. But apparently Nas never showed up and didn't really say why he didn't show up. And so Jay-Z felt insulted. Uh, the jabs were fairly pointed, but like I said, um, nothing too major. Nothing too major until Summer Jam 2001. That is a concert series done by Hot 97, one of the most important rap um, radio stations in New York City. Uh, Summer Jam is a big concert series. Uh, Jay-Z comes out and he's like, hey, I got this new album coming out, The Blueprint. Uh, you know a couple songs from there. For instance, H to the Izzo was a very big song in this time period. But he's like, "Hey, I got this new song. I want to tell. I want to. I want to rap for y'all. It's about some rappers." And he starts going on. It's a song called "Takeover." 
Um, it's on the Blueprint album. I don't give you a link to that, but you can find it pretty easily. Uh, Takeover. What's surprising is that it comes out fully produced. Like he's like, hey, I'm gonna try the song. I'm gonna I'm gonna spit on some rappers, and this is like a fully produced. Like Heath put some time into this. He's got a slideshow that goes along with it. Uh, for instance, he insults a rapper by the name of Prodigy by showing him in a ballerina outfit because apparently he's like, you claim you're a gangster, but you know what? Back when you were a kid, you took ballet and shows pictures of him in ballet. And then it gets to the final verse, which is almost double the length of all the other verses. There's three verses, but the final verse is twice as long as any of the other verses, and it's all about Nas. All about Nas. He claims that Nas can't make good music. He's like, you're lame. You suck. You can't make good music. Um, you know, why, why can't you make good music? You're, you're not a gangster. You, you, you didn't really live the life. You're talking about stuff you never experienced. Calls him washed up. My personal favorite line is when Jay-Z goes through Nas's albums. He's like, look, you've been in the game for 10 years. You put out five albums. I can do math. Uh, you know, your first album was Illmatic. The other three albums sucked. So that's a one hot album every 10-year average. Basically saying, you suck. Also, he alludes to a possible affair with Nas's baby's mother. Basically, the mother of Nas's children, of Nas's girlfriend. Uh, kind of covertly, Jay-Z says that you know what, did you, sorry, you know who, did you know what with you know who, but let's just keep that between me and you for now. Basically alluding, kind of like Tupac did, except for saying, you know, I effed your wife. He just said, you know who, did you know what with you know who. Basically alluding to like, hey, I've, I've messed around with your lady. Uh, if you go over one slide, you will see the aftermath of the of the Summer Jam concert. There's Jay-Z. Uh, weird fun fact to go along with this. If you notice who's in the middle there, that's Michael Jackson. And I bet you're wondering, Tully, what the hell does Michael Jackson have to do with Jay-Z? Glad you asked. Remember how I mentioned H to the Izzo was uh, Jay-Z's big hit at that time period, the big commercial hit? Well, H to the Izzo samples I Want You Back which was done by Michael Jackson, the same song that Little Romeo sampled to make my baby. So weirdly enough, Michael Jackson shows up in this. Uh, also, I should mention in 2001, Michael Jackson himself had come out with a new album, and he was trying to get some promotion out for it. So there you go, Michael Jackson and Jay-Z, things you never thought you'd ever see. This diss track was huge. People wondered how the heck could anybody respond. Like, this was this was shots fired. This was shots fired at Nas. People wanted to find out, look, are we going to have like anything, is it going to escalate into something more destructive? Will Nas come back on this? Nas has to respond. And Nas responds, if you've ever one slide, with Ether. Uh, his, his new album was called Stillmatic, kind of going off the, uh, the Illmatic name. Um, Ether is probably the most infamous diss track of all time. In fact, in the rap world, the term ether now means just, like, diss song. Like, the most painful diss song of all time. Uh, remember I said last week, Hit em Up was, like, probably the second worst diss song of all time, or most damaging diss song of all time. I would say ether is a little bit higher. Because ether is a very well-made song that nobody had thought Nas had it in him. Like, it's technically impressive with, like, the complex rhymes, and he goes at Jay-Z, like, hard. He claims that Jay-Z is a total fake. He claims that Jay-Z is, you know, not really a gangster. He's just, you know, whatever. 
He insults Jay Z's lyrics, says you can't rap. You just like you just totally stole Biggie's flow. Uh, says Jay Z's persona is fact. He says that um, Eminem destroyed him on uh, on a guest spot on Jay Z's album. Basically saying that like, you know Eminem murdered you, dude. Like you'll listen to it. I have it on Moodle. Um, I provided the dirty ver- version. Usually, I provide all the clean version of songs. This is the dirty version because Jay Z instead of FJZ, just saying just Jay-Z, it doesn't have the same ringing as FJZ. Uh, this is a bad record. Um, supposedly, in one of the earlier versions of this, uh, probably the, the if this had gone into the original song, this would have been too far, I think. But apparently in the original version of this song, um, Nas claimed that Jay-Z should have died in the plane crash that killed Aaliyah. Uh, Aaliyah was an R&B singer who was engaged to Damon Dash, who was a member of Rockefeller at the time period. Uh, also, I should mention, uh, before you listen to Ether, it's very homophobic. Uh, Nas says a lot of very, very homophobic things in there, so it's a different time. Just be aware. Uh, Jay-Z, uh, however, uh, Nas does not include the line about Jay-Z dying in the plane crash because that was viewed as too hard. Uh, Jay-Z responds to this with various songs. Uh, probably the most notable one is a freestyle called Super Ugly, wherein Jay-Z claims to um, have had a three-year-long affair with the mother of Nas's children, uh, child, Carmen Bryan. Pretty much is like, yeah, okay, um, let's talk about it. I had sex with your lady a lot over three years. Like... You can look up Super Ugly. I'm not going to get into the lyrics because yeesh. But, like, this is this is brutal. Um, it's seen as so, oof, so damaging. If you go over one slide, you don't have something to say about it. Jay-Z's mom. Uh, ironically, like, you, you know you went too far whenever your mom calls up the radio station and says, basically, Jay-Z needs to apologize for Nas's family and also to all women everywhere for being way too mean on Super Ugly. Like, do you know how bad you have to, like, mess up for your mom to, like... Like, this is a rap guy, and his mom is calling him being like, I apologize for my son. He, he needs to apologize to you. And actually, Jay-Z does do so. Now, interestingly enough, this continues for a while, but it never becomes violent. I mean, it's super contentious. Everybody, you know, has different uh, opinions about, you know, who won the battle. Um, just like old rap beefs used to be. Like, nobody died. Um, I, the, the, the general thinking is Nas won the battle with uh, Ether, but Jay-Z kind of won the war with the, with the overall career. And it shows that contention could occur without violence. Like, I don't think y'all realize, this is three or four years after, you know, Biggie and Tupac died. Like, it was almost like when this battle happened, there was a sigh of relief that, like, hey, nobody died. I mean, by the time you get to 2005, if you go over one picture... Uh, you'll get to the I Declare War concert, wherein, you know, Jay-Z announced, like, hey, I'm doing this concert, like, I Declare War. People assume, oh, it's going to be more disses against Nas. Um, ironically, Nas comes out, they perform each other's songs, they shake hands. Uh, Jay-Z says, you know, we had our hunt, we, we had our fun, the BS is done, let's go get that money. And so, like, hey, you know, we, we had fun, we, we, we did our battle, but the winner is capitalism. The winner is us making money. And actually, shortly after this, uh, Nas signed with Jay-Z's new record label, which was Def Jam. We'll get into this later in another podcast. Uh, Jay-Z at this time period become president of Def Jam Records following a quote-unquote retirement. 
Now, even though this was contentious, uh, this was seen as really invigorating Nas's career. Like, Nas actually, his notoriety goes way up because of this whole beef. And it shows that rap music could be de-escalated while still having some battles, retaining its soul, and making globs of money. Like I said, this is a huge deep breath out for a lot of rap people. So once again, it ends pretty well. All three of these things could have ended poorly, but they end fairly well. The final thing I need to talk about is what's going on in American society in this time period. And I, I didn't have to struggle too hard because there's two big things that kind of bridge the gap between music and American society in this time period. If you go over one slide, you're going to see it's TRL and Napster. That'd be Total Request Live, MTV's live music video request show, and Napster to the peer-to-peer -peer, uh, files sharing service. These underwrite all these developments, kind of underwrite all these developments, because they have everything to do with music getting to the masses. I cannot iterate this enough. The music business is at its absolute zenith during this time period. So much money was getting made. Tons of money was getting made. Millennials of this time period were teenagers and young adults and were perfectly primed to spend excess cash since the U.S. was theoretically free of external threats. This is that time period between, you know, there is no Soviet Union and there is no war on terror. It's the U.S. is wonderful and the economy is booming and we have all this money. For instance, you have Total Request Live. Uh, this was launched in the fall of 1998 on MTV. Almost immediately, it becomes their biggest show. It, allow music, it allows viewers to vote for their favorite music videos. It becomes a natural promotional vehicle, vehicle for labels. Um, its host, if you go over one side, you'll see its host, Carson Daly, with Eminem flipping you off. Uh, Carson Daly was kind of an affable, middle America version of Ed Sullivan for a new generation. Uh, Carson Daly didn't really have any talent, per se. I mean, he could, that's me, he didn't have talent. He didn't sing, he didn't dance, he didn't act, he wasn't like a showman. Kind of the old Ed Sullivan thing, just like, here, I'm presenting acts. Uh, in 1999, the, the show changed to include a live studio audience of screaming teenagers, uh, usually girls, and it became must-watch TV. I cannot iterate how freaking big TRL was in this time period, truly at the zeitgeist of the music business. Uh, it made stars out of a lot of different genres, in particular, pop music. Boy bands, your Backstreet Boys, your NSYNCs, and also pop princesses, your Britney Spears, your Christina Aguilera's, uh, later on your Beyonce's. Uh, but it has a very strong rap bit. Uh, weirdly enough, TRL was actually pretty big on rap music, uh, specifically Eminem. Uh, Eminem is a darling of the show, despite seemingly being against absolutely everything that TRL stood for. Like, theoretically, he's everything the audience wasn't. You know, he's a bad rapper guy, a poor, a poor kid from Detroit, you know, from the wrong side of the tracks. And yet he's kind of, you know, the, the audience of TRL is he's kind of middle and upper class little, you know, kids and it's, it's weird how dependent Eminem's success was dependent upon uh, teeny boppers like everybody's watching this show like even Eminem's quote unquote core fans of like lower income white persons are watching TRL for Eminem he becomes one of their biggest most consistent stars um, in 2000 thanks in large part to the success of TRL BET which is actually part of uh, Viacom which is MTV's parent company they have the same parent company uh, they make 106 in Park. If you go over one slide, you will see 
106 in Park. 106 in Park was kind of the hip-hop and R&B version of TRL. Uh, it also plays for a very young audience and makes even more rappers into stars. Uh, some rappers who might not otherwise get onto TRL would definitely get onto 106 in Park. Um, I don't want to date myself too much, but I will. I never watched very much 106. Sorry, I never watched too much TRL. I watched 106 in Park every afternoon. I Gosh. I remember whenever I was in college, like I would, I would come in from class, I'd go to the gym, and then uh, about 3, 3 o'clock, it was like 3 o'clock or 3.30, my butt would be parked in front of the TV for 106 in Park. And I would watch 106 in Park, freaking loved 106 in Park, Free Style Fridays, AJ and Free, the host, who were kind of Carson Daly-ish. And that they, they were just kind of, you know, affable host, that sort of thing. Uh, makes rappers into pop stars, like, and I cannot iterate this enough. Everybody's making money in this time period. Um, it, it's stupid amounts of money being made in this time period. Now, ironically, although they're getting promoted very heavily on things like TRL and 106 and Park, the other big player of this time period was Napster. Uh, if you go over one slide, you are going to see a picture of Napster circa 1999. Uh, this was released in 1999 as a peer-to-peer -peer music sharing service, uh, thanks in large part to the popularity of the MP3. Uh, you may be vaguely familiar with MP3s. They've probably been gone as long as you've been downloading music. Uh, MP3 is a file compression type, basically as a way to compress music that makes it much smaller with less uh, loss compression. Uh, basically, you can retain a, a music on a fairly small amount of space, uh, maintaining, uh, maintaining like some um, audio integrity. Uh, it launches in June of 1999. Uh, Napster does. MP3s have been around for a little bit while. However, it was kind of hard to get them. Uh, the music companies were kind of being um, slacking with giving the rights. Uh, There's really no good way to pay for them. Uh, no w way to like really keep them around. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, in June of 1999, it, it, it launches. Napster launches. And it almost immediately, like TRL, becomes super popular with young people, uh, most notably on college campuses, where it quickly overloaded networks. Uh, pretty much every college network in this time period, a lot of it was, you know, uh, a lot of it was dial-up with 56K, but some, of it, some colleges did have, like, T1 lines or whatever. Uh, pretty much Napster crashed them all because it was so popular. Uh, young people also love Napster as well, but when you're talking about Napster, you're generally talking about college kids. How popular was Napster? Okay, if you want to know how popular was Napster, uh, I will just tell you one statistic that tells you how popular Napster was. Don't think too much about it. But Napster, more people were using Napster and downloading music than they were getting pornography from the internet. Like, music was more popular than pictures of naked people. And that's a big deal. Like, it was 60% more popular than pornography in this time period, which... Naked people have been popular throughout history, but apparently, like, Napster is so big. Uh, Napster totally changes the record industry. It makes the price of the album uh, free instead of, like, $14.99. Um, ironically, it was often associated with a rise in album purchases because people would usually buy a song they liked in order to have it more portably and also to have it a, bit, a little bit of uh, file integrity. Uh, Napster wasn't always the best-sounding music. However, Napster was good for getting obscure stuff. Uh, generally, uh, once again, I will freely date myself. I used Napster for a while whenever I was in high school. Uh, Napster, 
what was nice about Napster was that you could find rare stuff, and it, you're pretty usually pretty sure about what you're downloading being accurate. Um, the the later Napster clones after Napster was shut down, spoiler to get shut down, like Bear Share, Kazaa, LimeWire, uh, they were never as reliable as Napster was. Napster, you're pretty it was pretty reliable about getting uh, the song you said. Uh, also, I should mention MP3 players, like portable MP3 players, were not very common. They were actually very expensive and also very limited. Uh, for instance, this time period, I remember a friend of mine having a portable MP3 player. It was a little Rio Diamond, I believe it was. It held 10 songs, and it cost about $200. Uh, so that was a lot of money. Like, for high school me, it was a lot cheaper to just, uh, you know, buy music from the CD store or get a friend to burn a song. Uh, that was usually burning on a, uh, on a disc. Now, how does Rap feel about it? Go over one slide. Rap hates it. Uh, specifically, Dr. Dre hates it. Uh, in 2001, he files a lawsuit against Napster and its users, uh, charging them against theft and copyright violation. Fun fact, they were. Uh, Napster ultimately settles, but the damage was done. Uh, Napster was permanently shut down in July of 2001, so it pretty much only existed for two years. Uh, although it had come back in various formats, nothing ever stuck, but it showed that things were changing. Uh, digital distribution really changes everything for the music business and also kind of marks the end of the music companies making tons of money. Uh, thanks to digital distribution, uh, the single becomes more important than the album. Things tend to get cheaper, particularly with the release of iTunes, which uh, makes things a lot cheaper. Now, what does this say about American society in general? If you go over one slide, this is the last thing we're going to talk about. Uh, there's Jay-Z and Beyonce in, like, 2002. They're both very young. That's when they first started. I don't think they were even dating at this point. I think they are just performing together. Uh, well, the f things I want you to know about, think about, when we're talking about this time period in general when we start discussing it in class. Number one, changes in technology were coming. Um, the Internet would become huge for promotion and distribution. Likewise, the MP3 and digital is going to overwhelm all other types of uh, media. It's also the apex and last gasp of the monoculture. It's really the apex and last gasp of a lot of things when it comes to the music industry. Um, more millennials are listening to the... More millennials and Gen Xers, I should say, are listening to the same sort of pop music than ever before. Like, more people are listening to the same sort of music than ever before in U.S. history. And rap is quite popular with everybody. And people are making tons of money off of it. Like, even if you're not having amazing sales, like Master P was, uh, he's making tons of money off of it. But the big thing I want you to realize was that there was de-escalation. I cannot iterate this enough. All three of these things we talked about, uh, they could have ended very poorly, but they didn't. I mean, Suge could have gotten violent. Suge could have refused to let Snoop go. Master P could have screwed over Snoop. No Limit could have not sold as well as they did. I mean, remember, they, they, were, they were quantity over quality. Uh, Dr. Dre might not have found a savior for his label, and he might have gone broke and had to, you know, go back to, doctor, uh, to death row or something. That Nas versus Jay-Z thing could have easily gotten into bloodshed. Uh, but it didn't happen. Things settled down. It looked like good things might happen. And this is where we're weirdly going to put a pin in it. Because Jay-Z's album, The Blueprint, was due to release on September 11th, 2001. Something else happened on December 11th, 2001, something you might be familiar with. But this is where we're actually going to stop with the chronology for a little while, and we're going to go more thematic for the next few classes. 
early on in the semester, I told you that some important concepts are race, gender, and class. Basically, when we talk about society, a lot of times you have to view through the race through the through the lens of race, gender, and class. And we're going to focus upon that for a while for the next few weeks, because New Orleans was the only wasn't the only southern city doing big things in the rap world. Neither was Miami with Two Live Crew. Next class, we got to talk about regionalism, and we really got to give Texas and Georgia some attention and some affection. Not only that, we have to talk about how the new South, quote-unquote, becomes fully ingrained in American society. So this is kind of a, a class discussion, but it's also a discussion of regionalism and how basically how regions start playing more of a, uh, of a role in rap music. But for that, this is Dr. Tully, hopefully not as long as the other ones, signing off for History 304.